Part Five of Volume Two of Plutarch's Parallel Lives. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume Two of Plutarch's Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, translated by Bernadotte Perin. Camillus, Part Two. After he had thus, like Achilles, invoked curses upon his fellow citizens, he removed from out the city. His case went by default, and he was fined fifteen thousand asses. This sum, reduced to our money, is fifteen hundred drachmas. For the ass was the current copper coin, and the silver coin worth ten of these pieces was for that reason called the denarius, which is equivalent to the drachma. Now there is no Roman who does not believe that justice followed hard upon the imprecations of Camillus, and that he received a requital for his wrongs, which was not pleasing to him but painful. Certainly it was notable and famous. For a great retribution encompassed Rome, and a season of dire destruction and peril, not unmixed with disgrace, assailed the city. Whether fortune so brought things to pass, or whether it is the mission of some god, not to neglect virtue that goes unrequited. In the first place, then, it seemed to be a sign of great evil impending when Julius the censor died, for the Romans specially revere and hold sacred the office of censor. In the second place, before Camillus went into exile, a man who was not conspicuous to be sure, but who was esteemed honest and kindly, Marcus Caedicius, informed the military tribunes of a matter, well worth their attention. He said that during the night just past, as he was going along the so-called New Street, he was hailed by someone in clear tones, and turned and saw no man, but heard a voice louder than man's, saying, Hark thou, Marcus Caedicius, early in the morning go and tell the magistrates that within a little time they must expect the Gauls. At this story the tribunes mocked and jested, and a little while after Camillus suffered his disgrace. The Gauls were of the Celtic stock, and their numbers were such, as it is said, that they abandoned their own country, which was not able to sustain them all, and set out in quest of another. There were many myriads of young warriors, and they took along with them a still greater number of women and children. Some of them crossed the Ripaean mountains, streamed off towards the northern ocean, and occupied the remotest parts of Europe. Others settled between the Pyrenees and the Alps, near the Senones and the Keltorians, and dwelt there a long time. But at last they got a taste of wine, which was then for the first time brought to them from Italy. They admired the drink so much, and were also besides themselves with the novel pleasure which it gave that they seized their arms, took along their families, and made off to the Alps, in quest of the land which produced such fruit, considering the rest of the world barren and wild. The man who introduced wine to them, and was first and foremost in sharpening their appetite for Italy, is said to have been Aaron, a Tuscan. He was a man of prominence, and by nature not prone to evil, but had met with the following misfortune— he was guardian of an orphan boy, who was heir to the greatest wealth in the city, and of amazing beauty, 
Lucumo by name. This Lucumo, from his youth up, had lived with Aaron, and when he came to man's estate, did not leave his house, but pretended to take delight in his society. He had, however, corrupted Aaron's wife, and been corrupted by her, and for a long time kept the thing a secret. But at last the passions of both culprits increased upon them, so that they could neither put away their desires, nor longer hide them. Wherefore, the young man made open attempt to remove the woman and have her to wife. Her husband brought the case to trial, but was defeated by Lucumo, owing to the multitude of his friends, and his lavish outlays of money, and forsook the city. Learning about the Gauls, he betook himself to them, and led them on their expedition into Italy. The Gauls burst in, and straightway mastered all the country which the Tuscans occupied of old, namely, that stretching from the Alps down to both seas, the names of which bear witness to the story. For the northern sea is called Adria, from the Tuscan city of Adria. The southern is called outright the Tuscan sea. This whole country is studded with trees, has excellent pasturage for flocks and herds, and an abundance of rivers. It had also eighteen cities, large and fair, well equipped for profitable commerce and for sumptuous living. These the Gauls took away from the Tuscans, and occupied themselves. But this happened long before the time of which I speak. At this time the Gauls had marched against the Tuscan city of Clusium, and were laying siege to it. The Clusians applied for assistance to the Romans, and begged them to send ambassadors in their behalf with a letter to the barbarians. So there were sent three men of the Fabian Gens, who were of great repute and honor in the city. The Gauls received them courteously, because of the name of Rome, seized their attacks upon the city walls, and held a conference with them. When they were asked what wrong they had suffered at the hands of the Clusians, that they had come up against their city, Brennus, the king of the Gauls, burst into a laugh, and said, The Clusians wrong us in that, being able to till only a small parcel of earth, they yet are bent on holding a large one, and will not share it with us who are strangers, many in number and poor. This is the wrong which ye two suffered, O Romans, formerly at the hands of the Albans, Fidenets, and Ardiats, and now lately at the hands of the Veientines, Capinets, and many of the Feliscans and Volscians. Ye march against these peoples, and if they will not share their goods with you, ye enslave them, despoil them, and raise their cities to the ground. Not that in so doing, ye are in any wise cruel or unjust, nay, ye are but obeying the most ancient of all laws, which gives to the stronger the goods of his weaker neighbors, the world over, beginning with God himself and ending with the beasts that perish. For these two are so endowed by nature, that the stronger seeks to have more than the weaker. Cease ye therefore to pity the Clusians, when we beseech them, that ye may not teach the Gauls to be kind and full of pity towards those who are wronged by the Romans. From this speech the Roman envoys saw that there was no coming to terms with Brennus, and so they slipped into Clusium, and emboldened and incited its citizens to sally out against the barbarians with them, either because they wished to discover the prowess of those warriors, or to display their own. The Clusians made a sally, 
and in the fight which raged along the walls, one of the Fabii, Quintus Ambustus, drove his horse straight at a stately and handsome Gaul, who was riding far out in front of the rest. At first he was not recognized, because the conflict came swiftly to pass, and his dazzling armor hid his face. But when he had conquered, and unhorsed his foe, and was stripping his arms from him, then Brennus recognized him, and called upon the gods to witness how, contrary to the general practice of all mankind, which was deemed just and holy, he had come as an ambassador, but had wrought as an enemy. Then putting a stop to the battle, he straightway led the Clusians alone, and led his host against Rome. But not wishing to have it thought that his people were rejoiced at the outrage, and only wanted some pretext for war, he sent and demanded the offender for punishment, and in the meantime advanced but slowly. When the Senate convened in Rome, many denounced the Fabi, and especially the priests called Fetials, were instant in calling upon the Senate, in the name of all the gods, to turn the curse of what had been done upon the one guilty man, and so to make expiation for the rest. These Fetials were instituted by Numa Pompilius, gentlest and justest of kings, to be the guardians of peace, as well as judges and determiners of the grounds on which war could justly be made. The Senate referred the matter to the people, and although the priests with one accord denounced Fabius, the multitude so scorned and mocked at religion as to appoint him military tribune, along with his brothers. The Gauls, on learning this, were wroth, and suffered nothing to impede their haste, but advanced with all speed. What with their numbers, the splendor of their equipment, and their furious violence, they struck terror wherever they came. Men thought the lands about their cities lost already, and their cities sure to follow at once. But contrary to all expectations, the enemy did them no harm, nor took aught from their fields, but even as they passed close by their cities shouted out that they were marching on Rome, and warred only on the Romans, but held the rest as friends. Against this onset of the barbarians, the military tribunes led the Romans forth a battle. They were not inferior in numbers, being no fewer than forty thousand men at arms, but most of them were untrained, and had never handled weapons before. Besides, they had neglected all religious rites, having neither sacrificed with good omens, nor consulted the prophets, as was meet before the perils of battle. But what most of all confounded their undertakings was the number of their commanders. And yet before this, and on the brink of lesser struggles, they had often chosen a single commander with the title of dictator, not unaware how great an advantage it is, when confronting a dangerous crisis, to be of one mind in paying obedience to an authority which is absolute, and holds the scales of justice in its own hands. Moreover, their unfair treatment of Camillus was in no slight degree fatal to discipline, since it was now dangerous to hold command without paying regard to the pleasure and caprice of the people. They advanced from the city about eleven miles, and encamped along the river Allia, not far from its confluence with the Tiber. There the barbarians came suddenly upon them, and after a disorderly and shameful struggle, they were rooted. 
Their left wing was at once driven into the river by the Gauls, and destroyed. Their right wing was less cut up, because it withdrew before the enemy's onset from the plain to the hills, from which most of them made their way back to the city. The rest, as many as escaped the enemy's hands, which were weary with slaughter, fled by night to Veii. They thought that Rome was lost, and all her people slain. The battle took place just after the summer solstice, when the moon was near the full, on the very day of a former great disaster, when three hundred men of the Fabian Gens had been cut to pieces by the Tuscans. But the second defeat was so much the worse, that the day on which it fell is called down to the present time, these alliances from the river. Now concerning these nefasti, our unlucky days, whether we must regard some as such, or whether Heraclitus was right, in rebuking Hesiod for calling some days good and some bad, in his ignorance, that the nature of every day is one and the same. This question has been fully discussed elsewhere. Still, even in what I am now writing, the mention of a few examples may not be amiss. To begin with, then it was on the fifth day of the month of Hippodromius, which the Athenians call Hecatombaeon, that the Boeotians won two illustrious victories, which set the Greeks free, that at Leuctra and that at Keresus, more than two hundred years earlier, when they conquered Latmias and the Thessalians. Again, on the sixth day of the month of Boedromion, the Greeks defeated the Persians at Marathon, on the third day at Plataea and Mykel together, and on the twenty-sixth day at Arbela. Moreover, it was about full moon of the same month that the Athenians won their sea-fight of Naxos, under the command of Cabrias, and about the twentieth, that at Salamis, as has been set forth in my treatise on days. Further, the month of Targelion has clearly been a disastrous one for the barbarians, for in that month the generals of the king were conquered by Alexander at the Granicus, and on the twenty-fourth, of the months the Carthaginians were roasted by Timoleon of Sicily. On this day, too, of Targelion, it appears that Ilium was taken, as Ephorus, Callisthenes, Damastes, and Philarchus have stated. Contrarywise, the months of Metagatnion, which the Boeotians call Panemus, has not been favorable to the Greeks. On the seventh of this month they were roasted by Antipater in the Battle of Crannon, and utterly undone. Before this, they had fought Philip unsuccessfully at Chaeronea on that day of the month, and in the same year and on the same day of Metagatnion, Achidamus and his army, who had crossed into Italy, were cut to pieces by the barbarians there. The Carthaginians also regard with fear the twenty-second of this month, because it has ever brought upon them the worst and greatest of their misfortunes. I am not unaware that, at about the time when the mysteries are celebrated, Thebes was raised to the ground for the second time by Alexander, and that afterwards the Athenians were forced to receive a Macedonian garrison on the twenties of Boedromion, the very day on which they escort the mystic Lachus forth in procession. And likewise the Romans, on the selfsame day, saw their army under Caepio destroyed by the Cimbri, and later, 
when Lucullus was their general, conquered Tigranes and the Armenians. Both King Attalus and Pompey the Great died on their own birthdays. In short, one can adduce many cases where the same times and seasons have brought opposite fortunes upon the same men. But this day of the Alia is regarded by the Romans as one of the unluckiest, and its influence extends over two other days of each month throughout the year, since in the presence of calamity, timidity and superstition often overflow all bounds. However, this subject has been more carefully treated in my Roman questions. Now had the Gauls, after this battle, followed hard upon the fugitives, naught would have hindered Rome from being utterly destroyed, and though those who remained in her from perishing, such was the terror which the fugitives infused into the occupants of the city, and which such confusion and delirium were they themselves once more filled. But as it was, the barbarians could not realize the magnitude of their victory, and in the excess of their joy turned to reverie and the distribution of the good things captured in their enemy's camp. For this reason the throngs who were for abandoning the city had ample time for flight, and those who were for remaining plucked up hope and prepared to defend themselves. Abandoning the rest of the city, they fenced the capital with ramparts and stocked it with missiles. But their first care was for their sacred things, most of which they carried away to the capital. The fire of Vesta, however, was snatched up and carried off by the Vestal virgins in their flight, along with the other sacred things entrusted to their care. However, some writers state that these virgins have watch and ward over nothing more than the ever-living fire, which Numa the king appointed to be worshipped as the first cause of all things. For fire produces more motion than anything else in nature, and all birth is a mode of motion, or is accompanied by motion. All other portions of matter, in the absence of heat, lie inert and dead, yearning for the force of fire to inform them, like a spirit, and on its accession in any manner soever, they become capable of acting and being acted upon. This principle of fire, then, Numa, who was an extraordinary man, and whose wisdom gave him the repute of holding converse with the muses, is said to have hallowed and ordered to be kept sleepless, that it might image forth the ever-living force which orders the universe aright. Others say that this fire is kept burning before the sacred things by way of purification, as among the Greeks, and that other objects within the temple are kept hidden from the gaze of all except these virgins, whom they call Vestals. And a very prevalent story had it, that the famous Palladium of Troy was hidden away there, having been brought to Italy by Aeneas. There are some who say that it is the Samothracian images which are hidden there, and they tell the tale of Dardanus bringing these to Troy, after he had founded that city, and consecrating them there with the celebration of their rites, and of Aeneas, at the capture of Troy, stealing them away and preserving them until he settled in Italy. Others still, pretending to have larger knowledge in these matters, say that two small jars are stored away there, of which one is open and empty, and the other full and sealed up, and that both are visible only to the holy virgins. But others think that these knowing ones 
have been led astray by the fact that the virgins, at the time of which I am now speaking, cast the most of their sacred treasures into two jars, and hid them underground in the temple of Quirinius, whence that place, down to the present time, has the name of Doliola, or Jars. However that may be, these virgins took the choicest and most important of the sacred objects, and fled away along the river. There it chanced that Lucius Albinius, a man of the common people, was among the fugitives, carrying off his wife and little children, with the most necessary household goods upon a wagon. When he saw the virgins with the sacred symbols of the gods in their bosoms, making their way along unattended and in great distress, he speedily took his wife, with the children and the household goods, down from the wagon, and suffered the virgins to mount upon it and make their escape to a Greek city. This pious act of Albinius, and the conspicuous honor which he showed the gods, in a season of the greatest danger, could not well be passed over in silence. But the priests of the other gods, and the aged men who had been consuls and celebrated triumphs, could not endure to leave the city. So they put on their robes of state and ceremony, following the lead of Fabius, the Pontifex Maximus, and vowed the gods that they would devote themselves to death in their country's behalf. Then they sat themselves down, thus arrayed, on their ivory chairs in the forum, and awaited their fate. On the third day after the battle, Brennus came up to the city with his army. Finding its gates open, and its walls without defenders, at first he feared a treacherous ambush, being unable to believe that the Romans were in such utter despair. But when he realized the truth, he marched in by the Colline gate and took Rome. This was a little more than three hundred and sixty years from her foundation, if one can believe that any accurate chronology has been preserved in this matter, when that of even later events is disputed, owing to the confusion caused by this very disaster. However, it would seem that some vague tidings of the calamity and capture of the city made their way at once to Greece. For Heracleides Ponticus, who lived not long after that time, in this treatise on the soul, says that out of the west a story prevailed, how an army of Hyperboreans had come from afar and captured a Greek city called Rome, situated somewhere on the shores of the great sea. Now I cannot wonder that so fabulous and fictitious a writer as Heraleides should deck out the true story of the capture of Rome with his Hyperboreans and his great sea. But Aristotle the philosopher clearly had accurate tidings of the capture of the city by the Gauls, and yet he says that its saviour was Lucius, although the forename of Camillus was not Lucius but Marcus. However, these details were matters of conjecture. When he had occupied Rome, Brennus surrounded the capital with a guard. He himself went down through the forum, and was amazed to see the men sitting there in public state and perfect silence. They neither rose up to meet their enemies when they approached, nor did they change countenance or color but sat there quietly, at ease and without fear, leaning on their staves and gazing into one another's faces. The Gauls were amazed and perplexed, and the unwanted sight, and for a long time hesitated to approach and touch them, regarding them as superior beings. 
but at last one of them, plucking up his courage, drew near Papirius Marcus, and stretching out his hand, gently grasped his chin and stroked his long beard, whereupon Papirius, with his staff, smote him a crushing blow on the head. Then the barbarian drew his sword and killed him. After that they fell upon the rest and slew them, made away with every one else they met, sacked and plundered the houses of the city for many days together, and finally burned them down and leveled them with the ground, in their wrath at the defenders of the capital. For these would not surrender at their summons, but when they were attacked, actually repulsed their foes from the ramparts with loss. Therefore the Gauls inflicted every outrage upon the city, and put to the sword all whom they captured, men and women, old and young alike. End of Camillus, Part 2